0: It's important for us as individuals to understand where the different levels of risk might be for various activities. But we as individuals are also highly influenced by the systems and the environments in which we reside. In absence of that guidance at a systems or organizational level, it's just incomplete.
1: We ought to have these objective measurements by county. And when you've met them, you give two weeks notice for in-person school. And then everyone has something to work for. Like, let's get Graham County to meet the gating criteria and get the percent positive down to 5%. And that's why you should wear a mask when you go to the Ace Hardware in Safford.
2: Try to temper your expectations. But all of these studies and all of these vaccines, wow. Humanity has really responded to this crisis and scientists have answered the call. That's how I see the whole vaccine picture right now. It fills me with a lot of hope.
3: hey everybody welcome back to the vitalist spark podcast i'm your host john ford buckle up pour yourself a beverage turn up your speakers and or get those headphones secured and get ready because this covid roundtable it really packs an informative punch round for round pound for pound this is the episode for analysis perspective and even for hope for one thing arizona appears to be doing a lot less worse according to the numbers that doesn't mean we don't have a long way to go but the trend is no longer going the wrong way And that's because, among other things, people are doing more of the right things. So don't stop now, stay at home as much as you possibly can, wash up, mask up, maintain social distancing, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. We need to be in this together in order to get out of this together. There's much more to get into, so here we go. It's time to talk numbers, systems, policies, gating criteria, school reopenings, collective community goals, economic and social supports and health insurance and we've got a robust and detailed vaccine discussion for you today in other words in this our fourth month of the roundtable we've got a lot to share today we are back with another COVID-19 roundtable as numbers start to improve just a tad sitting in on the roundtable today Mr. Will Humble how are you sir Howdy. Stabilize, I wouldn't say improve, I'd say stabilized. Fair enough. And also, Mr. Marcus Johnson. Marcus, how are you? Doing great. Feeling stable. Not in the emergency room today, but at the round table. Dr. Shaw, how are you, sir?
0: Doing really well. Thank you.
3: You're stable? <laughs> I'm plateaued.
0: <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> there it is.
3: Guess what?
1: The numbers <clears throat> look kind of encouraging. Can you run them down for us? Yeah, things actually look better this week. I mean, it's all relative, right? Well, here's the way I framed it at least things aren't getting worse. And if that's your definition of things getting better, then things are getting better. We've been accustomed over the last six weeks, for every single week, things look worse and worse and worse. And over the last week, things look stable. They're still stable at a bad level. Way too many people getting the illness. Hospitals way too close to their capacity. But at least it didn't get worse in the last 10 days. And that tells me that some of these interventions, closing the nightclubs, closing the bars, The face mask wearing requirement in most jurisdictions is making a difference. I was skeptical at governor's press conference last week. He was drawing conclusions about things moderating after like three or four days worth of data. But now we've seen that trend continuing, that leveling off, including what I think is really important is new hospitalizations for COVID-19. That was up 1% in the last week. And we're used to going up in the 25, 30% range every single week. Yeah, it's better. Dr. Shaw, you feeling that on the ground?
2: Yeah, in the ER, it's slight downtick. It's, again, very hard to tell. I'm just one provider in one emergency department. We are seeing less COVID than we were two, three weeks ago. So I think it's a little encouraging to see that. Yeah. One thing I'll say, though, based on Will's comment, is that there could be an effect from the restrictions that were put into place. But also, I'm a little skeptical, too, I do wonder whether we have burned through a lot of the fuel or a lot of the folks that are virus naive, and we've just sort of gotten to a place where there are not as many people left to infect.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean,
2: there's there's that. I remember the crash in New York. I'm sure it had a lot to do with the restrictions they put in place, but also at some point it achieved some level of prevalence. I'm not saying herd immunity, but I'm saying some level of prevalence whereby random interactions with people that have already had it already recovered it's not going to continue to spread the virus
3: let's talk one more set of numbers and that's testing so percent positivity has only barely maybe stabilized what about the numbers of new tests and how are we doing there
1: the numbers of new tests didn't go up very much in the last 10 days so over the course of june the number of tests per week really increased substantially even in the beginning of july There was a modest increase in the number of tests per week. The last week has been actually pretty disappointing. The percent positive rates hovering around that 19 to 22% range. Fewer tests per day and 10 tests per week, which is kind of puzzling because if you look at the governor's press conferences, it suggests that increasing testing is a big priority, and yet we see fewer tests being run per day. I expected to see a run-up because it's been set as a goal 35,000 tests per day by the end of July, and yet we haven't seen any progress in the last 10 days. What are we running right now per day? Well, today was 7,000 just. Now, some people think maybe a lab didn't report on time. Usually, if that happens, the agency will send out a tweet saying, oh, one of our lab partners didn't turn in their stuff on time, but they didn't do that today.
2: Are you talking specifically about today's
1: Numbers? Today's numbers, it was 1,300, 1,400 cases, but only 7,500 as a denominator.
2: I have noticed that Tuesdays tend to be the highest days, and and maybe that's because from the weekend, we're not getting all the results. I've noticed that in the last few weeks, so it just could be that Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays tend to be a little low reporting.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. If you look at the graph, it looks like there's two days every single week that are lower,
2: You know, I want to add something to follow on to the last discussion we were having. We were talking about how the virus may have gotten through much of our population, kind of like we saw in New York, and so now we'll see slightly lower numbers. One of the things that came out of that House HHS hearing that we had was the talk with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who is at Stanford. And he looked at that study talking about what the infection fatality rate is and estimated that the number of people that are out there in the population that have asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection is something like on the low end 10 to 15x, what the official case count is, and at the high end, something like 50x. Well, if you think about that in terms of Arizona, we've got about 100,000 plus cases Multiply that by about 20x, say the, the mean number there, and now you're talking about 2 million people, potentially having had exposure to the virus. If that's really the case, then our real prevalence numbers are really, really high. You're talking about 2 million people then. 2 million out of a 7.5 million population is pretty significant. Just looking at New York, if you looked at some of the data they were seeing out of the outer boroughs, like Queens, they were showing very high prevalence out of some of those studies. So again, it, it's going to run out of fuel. It's, it's not going to have that many new people to infect. And so then you're going to start to see a crash in cases. I mean, I saw a couple of days ago, New York had no new deaths from coronavirus.
1: But remember, if you look at the serology data, it's showing like 7% positive right now, which I mean, there's sampling bias. You would think the sampling bias would be on the upside and make it look like more people have recovered because of you you' get paying a hundred bucks for the test you got to have some reason to believe you were infected. So if that were true, I'd expect to see a higher percent positive on the serology
2: Yes. Yeah. The only question is what's the sampling on that study?
1: Agreed.
0: It's what's the sampling and where, where are the samples occurring too? Cause I think that, you know, when we speak, especially in this podcast, we're often focused on the state writ large. Um, but when you look down into each one of the different counties, some of the counties are decreasing in their percent positivity. Some of them are still increasing sl- slightly and, and at still high levels. So, you know, this pandemic is at a statewide level but in large part it is local.
2: And then the other thing I wanted to just touch on was the idea of testing lag. So, when we know that the the tests aren't not coming back within a day or two, closer to 5 or 6 days, some cases even we're watching 10 to 14 day lag, that means that you've got a whole lot of positive tests just kind of waiting to be reported and they haven't reported just yet. And so our numbers are artificially a little lower than they otherwise would be. And that number would be somewhere in the 500 to 1,000 range based on some data I saw on how many tests were actually lagged. And so if that's the case, we may be seeing more of a plateau than a decline.
1: Yeah, uh, I agree with
2: that. Is what I would caution. I agree with that.
1: Can we talk about turnaround times for a minute? This has just been a huge, huge problem. People getting tested, PCR, this is a diagnostic test, and they're waiting, as you mentioned, you said six, seven. What I'm hearing is that it's a block closer to nine days later. That means, A, the person that went in to get the test gets information after probably they've recovered or are already hospitalized or... And for sure, probably infected their roommates and coworkers and family members. County health departments get the data way after it could provide actionable information for them. And so they do a case investigation on somebody that's already recovering and infected people and see businesses that are testing their employees like at assisted living and skilled nursing with the PCR test are finding out they can't use that information to decide who can go to work. That's something that's got to get turned around. And the last 10 days, I have tweeted out a few times, let's put it on the dashboard. What gets measured gets done. You got to measure it or it won't happen. It won't be a priority. And you got to put a turnaround time metric on the dashboard at the state and then journalists and the rest of us out there in the real world can hold them accountable for the promises that they've made. Although the promises they've made have been to increase testing to thirty five thousand by the end of the month. But they never said. And by the way, the 80 percent of the samples would have a seventy two hour turnaround time. That's a smart goal. Smart goal would be thirty five thousand tests by the end of the week with 80% of the samples returned within 72 hours?
2: In fairness, I think that they didn't anticipate. I mean, I think that it's being run by LabCorp and Sonora Quest, and they're seeing the delays there. I, I am not sure that they anticipated
0: that. And I agree, going forward, with your thought, yes.
3: Marcus, what's your take on testing and positivity and how we're going to manage this thing going forward?
0: I like the idea to try to keep a better track on turnaround time. It is critical because even if you get a test and you don't understand whether or not you're positive for let's say seven to nine days, for many people that's not gonna change their behavior and there's a risk of continuing to spread the disease. So yeah, I mean, I'm not in disagreement with anything that anyone's already said.
3: Right now we're talking about managing the virus. I'm gonna steal something from another podcast episode that we did where one of the guests said, my snap the finger change would be X. So when it comes to where we stand as a state, If you could make a finger snap change that would be a game changer, what would it be? I'm going to start with Dr. Shaw.
2: It depends on how you look at the question.
3: If you could get
2: tests done on people rapidly all over the state, that would make a huge difference for public health. If I had to snap my fingers and I wanted to save the most lives, I would increase the capacity of all of our healthcare system so that we don't ever face the risk of not being able to care for somebody. There are two different things I would think of.
3: By the way, it's always Marcus's job to say it's depends. So I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure what he's going to do now. Marcus, what's your what's your finger snap change, Marcus? Develop
0: guidance, develop a plan. There's a lot of talk about schools reopening, opening or closing businesses, opening or closing bars opening and closing pools. We don't have a whole lot of guidance nationally, and we haven't had a whole lot of guidance in in each of the states suggesting what are the gating criteria now by which we are operating. Even if we see 14 days of declining cases, even if we see 14 days of declining positivity rates, Is that enough for us to confidently say that businesses can and should open, that schools can and should open? Or is there something in there that we need to consider about the magnitude at which the pandemic is still occurring? I think one of the places where we erred prior to Memorial Day is that we didn't have any sort of exit criteria. We said, listen, we've met the gating criteria that our national partners have suggested. And so therefore, let's open things up. But without any consideration of asking ourselves if things get worse, at what point do we institute new changes?
1: I agree with what you said. But what really happened is we met the gating criteria and went from phase zero to phase three. That's what happened. We didn't go to phase one. There were supposed to be criteria that were supposed to be met as you graduated through the tiers. But we went zero to 60 in 3.5 seconds and said, all right, party on. Let's go to phase three. That's what happened.
0: Yeah, but did we have any sort of criteria that asked ourselves if things get worse? At what point do we start to roll things back? Was there any sort of objective criteria for
3: that?
1: Oh, yeah. Headlines. (laughs) We
3: have shifted from the COVID-19 roundtable to the COVID-19 comedy show.
1: Will, your finger (laughs) snap change? A big increase in testing a marked improvement in turnaround time so that 90% of samples are coming back within 72 hours, and every person who works in a nursing home being tested with the antigen test before every shift. And how far away are we from realizing that? Well, we would have to triple the amount of tests that we're doing right now by the end of the month. We'd have to improve the turnaround time from where it is right now, which is basically a week or a little bit more. Cut that in more than half to get it to 72 hours. And I don't know the answer to the third thing, which is what's happening in assisted living and skilled nursing facilities. I will say part of this response also is using the tools of the state to get the accomplishments that you want to meet your goals. And one of the things that hasn't been done I haven't seen an executive order that requires assisted living and skilled nursing to have a protocol for testing their staff. Because the state holds the licenses for those facilities, an executive order could compel that, and then they would cry poor. They'd say they don't have the money for it, which maybe they don't, but you've got CARES Act money that could fund that kind of testing. And because that's such a high-risk population, and because those people are still a major contributor to our ICU bed and hospital bed capacity, we could make... I think, a real difference if we had a much better focus on assisted living and skilled nursing.
2: You might know that I had convened the stakeholder group of all of those folks and had started to work on a legislative package that did exactly that. And we actually even had the bills drafted in case we went to special session. But since it became clear that we were not going to special session, we did actually pass on the language to the governor's office.
3: Marcus mentioned earlier that no guidance has been released at the state or county level about what gating criteria might be locally. There was guidance released last week for individuals to make decisions from low risk to high risk, from opening the mail to eating at a buffet. A graphic came out from DHS and the governor's office saying which activities are more high risk versus low risk. Why is this not enough?
0: It's important for us as individuals to understand where the different levels of risk might be for various activities. But we as individuals are also highly influenced by the systems and the environments in which we reside. And so... If that is our workplace or if that is the school or the childcare center that we send our kids to, they have to have confidence in understanding when it is appropriate and when it is not appropriate or when it is safe and when it is not safe for them to decide to take on certain actions. And so in absence of that guidance at a systems or organizational level, it's just incomplete.
1: I'll give you a for instance on that. For weeks and weeks and weeks, it was like, oh, please, Arizonans, cover your face while you're indoors and in public. And some people did. Maybe 20% of the people did. Well, it took removing the restrictions at the local level to allow cities to put those ordinances in place to actually change the behavior. And so those people on the fence, that 60% of the public that were never against face masks, but just never had one or never really thought about it, weren't in the habit of bringing it with them in the car and stuff. Now they're on board and you can see a big behavior change. And so it took that mandate with basically no enforcement, but at least people knew that it was a mandate and that changed the behavior. So everyone knew with the guidance that face masks were important, but it didn't convert into a behavior change until there was a mandate. Even though it's
3: probably the most politicized part of this current pandemic. Seems to be. Yeah. So then let's move to probably (laughs) the hottest topic of discussion right now. And we touched on it a couple of weeks ago. We asked the question, Did we think August 17th was a real date for reopening schools? Now it's an open debate, and you've got individual school districts making different choices. You've got the universities talking in different ways and means about when they're going to open or not. Everybody wants to know what's going to happen, and nobody yet has established any kind of criteria for it.
2: People are watching these numbers, and they're waiting to see what's going to happen. If we really do have a significant crash in the numbers, it might change our thinking. It is a political discussion, I think, in a way, because teachers have said that they're not comfortable. There's surveys done by the AEA talking about how teachers don't feel comfortable going into those environments to teach because they're afraid for their own health, and I don't blame them. And that might change if we find that We have a New York City-like experience. A little time goes by and you're not seeing very much. In terms of case count, it might change. So I think there's a a little bit of a wait-and-see approach. And that's not completely wrong to say, let's kind of wait and see how this goes. I think that there is some planning that has to happen before you pick a start date. Bearing that in mind, you're going to have to adjust a little bit. So what I've heard is potentially just a couple-week delay after August 17th. But I think it's in the time will tell category.
1: Here's what I think is that you should have some criteria that the community needs to meet before you set the date. You could do this county by county, I think. And you say, look, here are the criteria within your county that you need to meet. And at that point, you can set your date for in-person school. Number one, a positivity rate of 5% or lower. Number two, a consistent three-week decline in the number of new cases. Number three, your cases are investigated within 72 hours of sample being collected 80% of the time and that your hospitals are at 80% or less capacity and or are open for elective procedures. And when you meet those criteria, you can give your districts a two-week notice that you can set your in-person school date. Then what that does, I think, A, it's objective criteria. You could adjust the criteria, but what I'm talking about is a criteria-based system. It would be objective. Plus, everybody wants to see schools opened. There's a different risk tolerance for certain people, but everyone wants in-person school started. And this way, you have given the community a goal to achieve. You have a collective cause, like let's get Graham County to meet the gating criteria and get the percent positive down to 5%. And that's why you should wear a mask when you go to the ACE hardware in Safford. I think we ought to have these objective measurements by county. And when you've met them, you give two weeks notice for in-person school, and then everyone has something to work for. But everything I've heard is, well, let's set a date.
2: I agree with you. And at the same time, even if we set a date, and I know that the state controls some of the funding for education, but it's still local control. You still have school boards that can do what they want, other than the governor saying you can't do X.
3: And they are doing that. There are already school districts that have come out and said, we're not starting on August 17th. There are some districts that have actually already said, we're not doing anything in the first quarter. And some say, come on in on August 17th. At least it strikes me as a recipe for disaster.
1: I don't know. That's local control.
3: It's also an uncontrolled local experiment in community spread.
0: I completely agree. There needs to be some sort of a gating criteria or just any sort of criteria that looks at the community context and its potential implications for schools. Districts should be able to figure out what is our potential exit strategy. If things take a turn for the worse, then at what point do we make additional decisions about changing our internal practices or even consider shutting down again
1: yeah great it needs to be on their mitigation plan and that's the other half of the equation everyone needs to hey you should meet the community gating criteria that are established and then have a mitigation plan that you run past your county health department that's executable by the way not pie in the sky plan it's better to have a plan you can actually pull off than to have a plan that's pretends to be really really strong but you can't actually do it.
0: It kind of reminds me of one of the first podcasts that we did on this. We were talking a lot about consumer behaviors, consumer confidence, just how people feel in general. And that's going to dictate their behavior. That's going to dictate whether or not people are comfortable sending their kids back to school. I think that's a good combination to kind of look at what can we do from a community context and create gating criteria around there. And also, individual schools are doing everything that they can internally to make sure that they have a safe environment for their staff and their students and the families that might come into that environment. And those two things combined together hopefully will start to give the community more confidence, individuals more confidence to be able to safely get their children back to school.
3: I actually heard this this weekend from somebody who said healthcare workers never stopped going to work. Construction people never stop going to work. First responders never stop going to work. Why is it that teachers can say, I won't go to work? What's your reaction to that?
2: I'm speaking as a healthcare worker on the front lines. I feel a sense of duty. I feel that it's my job to do that. I think firefighters know they have to run into burning buildings. I think physicians and nurses know that they get exposed to communicable disease.
3: Whereas teachers aren't used to risking their lives.
2: Right. And the other thing is that uh, although just broadly across the board, we're also getting paid very different levels than, than teachers. There's a little bit of hazard, I guess, that's in there. Also, if you think about like, how we are professionals in the business. You go to medical school or nursing school. You understand how this stuff works, and you take appropriate precautions with PPE. And the other thing is, when we do take care of patients, and however we're doing it, we're aware of how we're exposing ourselves. You know, with a, with a virus like this, within the classrooms, you have to have a plan for mitigating the transmission of the virus. So, in in the ER, for example, we we know what to do. We're putting people in particular rooms. We're using full PPE. That's different from a classroom. I mean, a classroom, you're not going to get all these kids to wear masks necessarily and keep them on. Uh, but then you're also in the room with them indoors, breathing the same air for hours at a time. That is a little different from even what I do in the ER. can understand that from a logical perspective, there's the risk there to their health. I don't have 30 patients sitting at desks And there I am at the front of the room speaking to them for an hour. That's not the way patient care goes.
3: Now, the other side of this pandemic that we haven't talked a ton about, everybody's waiting for sort of the economic cliff to get even worse and worse. The governor actually acted last week to, again, extend the eviction moratorium. But that doesn't change the fact that thousands and thousands of people have lost their jobs or have been out of work for protracted periods of time and also subsequent to losing their jobs lost their health care coverage and access to care. Marcus, what does this look like numbers wise and what should it look like policy wise?
0: It's just another one of the downstream consequences of the pandemic that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. But we're starting to see that people are losing their health insurance coverage based on the fact that so many folks are losing their jobs. And we would expect to see more people applying for access, our state Medicaid program, or applying for the marketplace to get subsidized coverage. But we're just not seeing that right now. Um, So ultimately, it's an unfortunate circumstance when there's a pandemic that is a major threat to individuals' health. And yet they're kind of left defenseless without health insurance coverage right now. There are various ideas that are being tossed around out there at a national level, everywhere from open up a special enrollment period for the marketplace. We need to make sure that we continue this maintenance of effort for Medicaid to ensure that no one gets kicked off of Medicaid. There's a Democratic task force that has created a plan to try to shore up some of the gaps in health insurance coverage, but it'll require an act of Congress. So there there are ideas out there. Nothing is actively being pursued at this point. So what we're going to see in the near future is more people uninsured, needing health insurance coverage, needing to get health care services, but not able to afford them.
3: Dr. Shaw, are you seeing this play out in daily life in the emergency I've, room?
2: Absolutely. I'm talking more about the economic effects. I'm worried. There's a significant portion of the population that is very concerned and don't want to participate in the marketplace. And I don't blame them. And that is an effective boycott of a large proportion of the population. And the economy depends on everybody participating. If you're seeing huge numbers of people not participating in the marketplace, you've you've now created a, a recession or a downturn. And people's jobs are dependent on that. And that is something we're really going to have to turn our focus to in a big way. I think once we either get the vaccine or see a crash or somewhere in that range, even actually well before that, We have to start thinking about how it is we're going to address the economic calamity that has been caused by this virus. It's not a small thing. It's not a little thing. We're talking about people being able to put food on the table, people's businesses being washed away. And the scale of that problem is something that we said to ourselves, okay, we're going to temporarily shift that into the future, but the future is coming. And we have to eventually turn our focus. We've been focused a lot on numbers and making sure we don't have unnecessary deaths and hospital systems and all this other stuff. This other thing is there and it's huge. And we really ought to start thinking about that as well.
0: There have been so many supports, rightfully so, that have been set up through policy, whether at the national or state or local levels, in order to ensure that families have the ability to weather through this storm as much as possible. The big question is, once the public health emergency is gone, what happens to those supports? Do they get completely yanked out? Is there some sort of a transitional period within the Medicaid program, housing programs, food insecurity programs to kind of help people get back on their feet? And those conversations are happening, fortunately, at many levels, but it's just something that we have to keep in the back of our mind.
2: To your point, the unemployment running out at the end of July, that 600 bucks again, I think it was in uh, the Times. That I saw Bernanke and Yellen talking about how that's going to be a catastrophe if we don't do something to
1: continue that
2: and then make sure people are supported while this thing is ongoing. So we, we have to start planning for the end of this.
1: There's that planning word again. We're just lucky we can sell Treasury bills at 1%. Really, seriously, because there's countries like Italy and others who have to pay 3 4 5% when they sell their Treasury bills. And we can sell these T-bills at 1%. The Fed's buying a whole bunch of them, by the way, and as well as corporate bonds. We are in a unique position just economically because we hold the currency that the world wants, that we're having advantage that other countries don't have, that we can accumulate this kind of debt without having big, long-term damage to our future ability to thrive as a country. So- I mean, that's the deficit spending is financing the things that we're just talking about. And if when I think it's when not if the unemployment insurance is extended after July 31st, I don't think it'll be 600 a week anymore. I think it'll transition down to our lower level. That's all deficit spending, but at least it's at 1% interest.
2: You're bringing up another important point is that that's yet another thing. That's beyond that, right? That's even further into the future. The fact that we can borrow at this rate is built on a lot of confidence that the US government will always pay its debts. And therefore, we're seen as the risk free rate, right? That's the the economics textbook version of it. But at some point, you may not just be able to print more and more money and then be able to borrow at those rates. At some point, climate. And investor confidence might change so that dollars wouldn't be the currency that everybody would want to keep their assets in. And we might face some consequences. We might see a credit downgrade. At some point, that's another thing to worry about after the second thing.
3: Hey, we promised ourselves a conversation that we need to have right now. There are three drugs, somewhere in phase two or phase three, that could be vaccines. There are two more that are in phase two, and there are about 19 that are in phase one. From the perspective of what you all have seen, where do we think we are relative to a vaccine? And what will the future look like? Is it one vaccine? Is it four vaccines? What should we expect when it comes to a vaccine? What should people's expectations be on timing and how it actually happens? I'm
1: super confident that we're going to have a safe and effective vaccine. I think people are going to be really surprised how quickly it happens. And there are reasons for that. Number one, the virus is pretty stable. It's not mutating super fast. It's not like HIV where it hides in the immune system. The smartest people in the whole world are working on this vaccine. And here's the kicker, is that governments, both the U.K. government and the U.S. government, are covering the downside risk by saying, look, you do all the research and we'll pay the bills. Not only that, but the AstraZeneca vaccine, that's the one in phase three in the U.K. Number one, we don't even know if it's going to work, but they're already manufacturing the vaccine these administrative and financial decisions are really speeding up the production of the vaccine because one of the things that slows it down so much is the financial downside risk. The chief financial officers of the drug manufacturing companies, they're like, wait, wait, oh, ho, ho. let's see what happens with phase three before we do anything further. All that's being accelerated, combined with the fact of what we've seen. They've been in Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine now. It's showing that the people in phase two, that's the second trial, efficacy, what does it work part of the trial, but small numbers of people like less than 100. I think every single person formed antibodies to the virus, and they did different dosages, and you saw different responses with different dosages. And so in the end, I think it's going to come down to, yes, we're going to for sure have vaccines. And the question will be, what's the dose? Do we need a booster? How many million doses per week can we roll out? You asked about timing, and I don't know like when the timing is going to be. I know there's a lot of naysayers out there, and you can find any number of them that'll say, oh, not too quick. We don't know if it'll work. If you look at the phase two stuff, and this is not preprint, it's like New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet yesterday. I mean, this is like real stuff, real antibodies being formed at various different doses in phase two. They're going to phase three. It's a virus that's pretty stable antigenically. We're going to have a vaccine. Dr. Shaw?
2: I've looked at some of what's going on, so I'm just quickly to go over it. There's the AstraZeneca vaccine at University of Oxford. There's the Moderna vaccine. And then there's the Pfizer vaccine. Those are the three that I I really know about the most. Oh, and there is the Chinese company, Sinovac. Mm -hmm. The product is called Coronavac, I believe. And they're also in a phase three trial in Brazil. So start with the Oxford AstraZeneca one, it's phase one, two trial, almost 1100 people in there, not much in terms of side effects. And they're talking about good, solid antibody response, which is great. We talk about antibodies a lot, but don't forget the other half is the T cell mediated immunity. So you, you also have cell mediated immunity. That's a whole nother pathway through which you can get immunity and not really have to measure antibodies. There's another side to it. We always talk about serology and all these other kinds of things. We always seem to forget that. That seems to be missing throughout all of these conversations. T cell mediated immunity, which is another arm of your immune system that helps specifically kill virus infected cells. It's just not talked about as much because it's harder to measure. It's harder to understand how that process is working. So you'll see the antibody discussions everywhere from people saying, well, wait a minute, we don't know if the antibodies are lasting. but There's another part of it that we don't seem to talk about very much. But yeah, these guys at Oxford, AstraZeneca, phase three trial underway with 10,000 people. In the moderna trial again starting a phase 3 trial with 30,000 people my understanding is on 727 so that's a week from now and they had the same good response they used like a 100 microgram dose and they had some cell mediated immunity some CD4 response but not a lot of CD8 response and that's what I kind of understood about what's going on there and by the way that last one that moderna one was two doses from what I understand day one and then you give it four weeks later the the last one the Pfizer one is the same thing I think it's a two dose vaccine but they showed a lot of efficacy at the one microgram dose. Theoretically, if you can use one instead of 100, you've got 100 times as many doses to give out to people. The results were not that different from one to the other. Good solid efficacy. They also showed pretty solid T cell mediated activity. These are all really promising, so I agree with Will in that a lot of this is very optimistic. Uh, Again, very early, very preliminary, so you, you try to temper your expectations, but all of these studies and all of these vaccines wow, humanity has really responded to this crisis and and scientists have answered the call. I think we should be very proud of these folks for all the life-saving work they're doing. We should give them a a rousing global thank you and helping to save so many lives across the world and dive into this research very fast. And then all the folks that make it happen through all the the various stages. So that's how I see the whole vaccine picture right now. Fills me with a lot of hope.
3: This is not a horse race. We'll take three, we'll take two, we'll take whatever comes.
2: Yes, it ends up being that these four vaccines that we just talked about all end up coming to market, but they can all manufacture X hundred million doses. And that covers a lot of the world's population in a graduated way. You start with probably seniors, high risk populations. Then we're probably gonna go to healthcare workers, some kind of ordered fashion to try to minimize the lives lost from this virus. That's how you're gonna see this thing go through. I'm just extremely encouraged.
3: Marcus, your
0: take? My take is it took me three attempts to pass organic chemistry in college <laughs> and and biochemistry in college. So I'm the wrong guy to ask about vaccine creation. But to Dr. Shah's point, I think I'm most curious about when the vaccine or vaccines are here, how do we distribute them equitably? Who gets them first? How do we communicate that to the greater public? And how do we ensure that we don't have some of the hiccups that we have had with testing and testing distribution?
3: Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Will. And thank you, Dr. Shaw. Marcus, you may have taken three attempts at organic chemistry, but I didn't even know such a class existed back in the day. So suffice it to say that this roundtable exceeded what they cover in English Lit. Here at The Spark, we trust that this episode gave you some optimism and much to think about regarding how we can rally as communities around the goals we all want, like getting the testing that we need, reopening schools appropriately, and getting to a vaccine. We can do these things together through a combination of smart personal behaviors, smarter community goals, and coordinated systems-level support. Remember, we need to be in this together to get out of this together. Our COVID-19 Roundtable will return in two weeks, As for next week, stay tuned because we've got another great conversation coming your way too. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. Whether the topic is food, affordable housing, the census, the art and practice of storytelling, first responders, or heat, the Vitalist Spark has got you covered with great guests, insightful content, and probably one or two bad jokes. There is so much more to explore related to community health and well-being among our more than three dozen episodes so far, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.